1: encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and Womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and before I get started uh, and introduce my very special guest this afternoon, I'd like to give out our call-in number if you're listening and you would like to join us on the show. We'd love to hear from you. You can do so by calling 888-329-3306. That's 888 888- 329 And be sure to uh, check out our lineup at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. Uh, I'd also like to give a a quick thank you to our sponsors for helping to bring the show to all of you this afternoon. Uh, That's Mount St. Joseph Academy and the Foley and Hillsley Group uh, associated with Baird Financial. Uh, I'd like to get started now and welcome my, my guest to the show this afternoon. Her name is Dr. Anastasia Yendiki, and she is the assistant professor in radiology at Harvard Medical School, as well as assistant physicist at Massachusetts General Hospital. Anastasia, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, Susan. Thanks for having me. It's great to be
1: here. Oh, it's great to have you. Um, I have lots to talk to you about this afternoon and uh, very excited to uh, have you um, at a time when I think there's a lot of discussion around uh, the country regarding uh, the the events that happened last week and just in general the, the discussion and topics around mental health. And wellness, and we're going to talk about that a little bit, um, and touch on that later in the show. But I, I wanted to start out with a quote that I read. Um, you said, "When I was younger, I was told that I couldn't enter a STEM field because I was a woman." And I wanted to ask you first off, um, who told you that? And uh, the second part of my question is is whether the drive that you have today is a combination of kind of proving them wrong, and also the challenge of discovery, which I know is something you um, greatly enjoy.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, that's a great question. So I should say that I wasn't told that explicitly. So nobody came and told me, you know, you cannot do that. Um, and it, w- I wasn't told that by my immediate environment either. It was um, just a the signals that you pick up from uh, society just by looking around and seeing that there aren't many uh, people that look like you, there aren't many women um, in STEM fields. Um, and in general, when you talk to people and, you know, as a as a kid, they ask you what you want to be when you grow up, usually, you know, they would ask, oh, do you want to be a teacher? Um, you know, things like that. Um, so it was it was clear that i was not like the people who were expected to go into these these fields and um you're absolutely right that uh proving people wrong was um was a big um appeal for me um so as soon as i got that message about something that um you know, you can't do that, uh, then my reaction to that would be, well, just
1: wait. (laughs) Sometimes that's a really good motivator. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you've had such an incredible career. Is it still with you today that that kind of desire to prove? um, Or have you, do you feel like you've done that?
2: so you would think that there comes a time where you feel like you've done that but um that has not been my experience i still have to prove myself mm-hmm. uh pretty much every day uh it never really ends um and you know we think that we reach a point or we see someone you know, being described uh, in an article or something like that, and it, it looks to us like that person must have reached that point where she doesn't feel like she has to prove anything anymore, um, or everyone just assumes that, um, you know, she's good at what she's doing or something like that, um, but uh, no,
1: it's a, it's an ongoing process. Mm. Uh, I should mention you grew up in Greece Mm-hmm. And um, initially, you studied electrical engineering uh, before coming to the United States and earning a Ph.D. Um, mm-hmm. at the University of Michigan. Tell me about that that decision to, uh, to first go into electrical engineering. Mm-hmm.
2: So as a child, I liked a lot of different things. Um, so I liked art and music just as much as I liked, you know, math and physics and all the topics that are more related to the kind of work that I do today Um, so I actually changed my mind a lot of um, times Um, you know as a teenager when you start to think about uh, what do I see myself doing in the future um, you know I at some point I thought I was going to be an archaeologist um or a psychologist um at some point i thought i was going to be in advertising i don't know how i got these ideas <laughs> um, um <laughs> movies maybe um so and then eventually i well you know maybe it's not a coincidence i picked something that was uh very hard potentially because of that you know um oh you think that's something that i can do <laughs> um so I like technology so that was a big um aspect of why I decided to go into engineering um in general also when I was growing up um in Greece there was this um mentality that you know you should do something that um will um will land you a good job, so something like an engineer or a lawyer or a doctor or something like that, so um, there was some of that going on, um, but also I I was drawn to
1: technology and um, to doing hard things, I guess. Yeah, we're, so t- can you tell me a little bit about your upbringing and, and you mm-hmm. know, what kind of young girl were you, what what kind of uh, aspirations and and challenges did you have growing up?
2: Mhm. Um so like I said I I was drawn to a lot of different things and um you know at some point I thought when I was still in elementary school I thought I was going to write a novel or um I was going to stage a play. Um I had some big ideas like that from time to time. Um and I liked reading a lot. I taught myself how to read before uh, going to school and I guess that sort of stuck with me later on I like um learning other languages um and some of that interest in the arts has also stuck with me um so um yeah so I like to do a lot of different things and I didn't want to limit myself to only one of course eventually you have to make a choice and really
1: apply yourself to one or two um things but um yeah I was very curious about a lot of things and would you say that you know your academics Came somewhat easy to you when you were in school. Um, well, easy in terms
2: of um, well, I still had to do hard work, right? It wasn't um, easy, easy, but I, I did get good grades at school. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: When I, you know, when I ask that question, I'm always thinking of you know comprehension. I think that um, mm-hmm. some students um, hear and read and and comprehend uh, quicker than others. I'll say. So I would imagine if you taught yourself to read at a young age, um, then that was not a struggle for you.
2: Yeah, so that was pr- that probably made school um, seem kind of easy in the beginning, mm-hmm. um, and maybe that made me like school. And you know, it's kind of a feedback loop. The more you think like, oh, I, I like this and I can do this, then the more uh, work you put into it, and the the more you try to do better. Um so that probably had something to do with that the fact that in the beginning um it was not a struggle.
1: Yeah. Can you so tell me what what was the catalyst for your decision to to change direction and um, you know come to the United States and uh go to the University of Michigan for your PhD? Mm-hmm. Um so I didn't really see it as changing direction.
2: I um I always wanted to travel and um you know far away places had uh... also big appeal for me Um the u.s. obviously uh... is known for uh... being you know the best place to study engineering Um so it was just a step in you know in that direction i, I didn't see it as a as a big change Although, of course, you know, geographically and culturally and everything else, it might seem like a huge change to you know, go to a different continent where you don't know anybody um, uh, just to study. But uh, for me, it was just kind of like a step in the path that
1: I was on. Uh, did your family support your decision to leave Greece? Um, Yes, well, they they supported my decision to uh, continue on
2: with my studies, of course, you know, leaving. (laughs) um, That's tough for, um, for everyone. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
1: And I'd like to so you know, when you mentioned um, the United States being one of the best places to come and Mm -hmm. study engineering, what was your, your vision of the United States before you arrived?
2: What Um, was your perception? Well, it was the vision that I had based on movies that I watched, Um, you know, like Working Girl and things like that. Um, So there was this idea of a place where there were a lot of opportunities and you can just kind of like dream up your own life.
1: Yeah, that that's so interesting. So then, you know, you had an image from from watching movies and then you got here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and right in the middle of the country. <laughs> yes, right, right. Um what was your experience like versus your expectations during your college years?
2: Um so I at that time I was mostly focused on my studies.
1: Mhm.
2: So, um Obviously, I kind of, I knew that that was not going to be like in the movies. <laughs> um, so, it's, in some ways, it was similar to what I was doing before. You know, I was in school. I continued being in school. In other ways, it was very different. It was, um, you know, people from all over the world. So, that was obviously very exciting. Um it felt easier being a woman in electrical engineering and in, you know in school um than when I was in Greece. Greece is kind of a macho culture as you may have heard. Yeah. So um so that it that was
1: a that was an improvement, I would say, when I um when I got here. Yeah. Tell me, was there anyone in, from Greece that believed in you and was someone that kind of helped you to um believe yourself that you were on the right path. Uh well teachers um mm-hmm.
2: had um had always believed in me and um that was that made me feel like, you know, I I could I could do this. Um so that was a big that was a big um factor in it. Um, obviously, if nobody in my early student years had believed in me, um it would be hard to take a step like
1: that yeah um anastasia you've you've talked openly about the fact that you had suffered from depression, mm-hmm. and um you know over the i would say about ten years ago, you were mm-hmm. able to really overcome that. My first question is when did that start for you? um so
2: one interesting thing about mental health issues like depression and anxiety, is that they don't have a clear start nor a clear end. Um, So it's more something that you have to deal with um, on an ongoing basis and there may be, you know, little triggers that make it um, more serious at times. Um, and as you go on, hopefully, and you know with the right kind of assistance from um, um, the right kind of clinicians, you can develop the ways to uh, cope with it and to know the next time that it happens uh, how to deal with it. So it was something that um, you know, it's hard to say that there was a, a clear um, clear start. To it, um, there. I think that at that time, when that particular um, episode happened, uh, there were probably a lot of stressors from, you know, both personal life, work life, kind of everything, um, as well as, you know, being at an age where there's a lot of um, set expectations uh, from. Um, women and what they should have and shouldn't have accomplished at at that Mm.
1: point in life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, thinking about when we're young and we're supposed to be kind of um, determining what we're going to be when we grow up, that's always such a big, big question. Mm -hmm. And as teenagers, we have normal angst and young girls have, you know, they're going through all kinds of hormonal Mm -hmm. changes. And I guess it's hard to determine what those emotions are directly connected to whether it's physical, mental, emotional.
2: Right. And it, it's generally agreed upon that with mental health issues, part of it is genetic predisposition and part of it is environmental and, you know, behaviors that you learn um, that are more likely to get you into that um, type of situation. Um, so, There's a part of it that we don't control, but then there's a part of it that we do, which is, um, you know, parts of our behavior that we can try to change. Um, And, again, when I say change, one thing to keep in mind is that there will never be a time when, you know, you will be, quote, unquote, fixed. But when you see a certain type of thinking that you're engaging in that, you can learn to recognize it and, um,
1: you know, counter it. Would you say it's widely accepted that um, it stems from both a genetic and an environmental component? Yes. Is that true? And
2: the the exact mix, you know, is not exactly known or understood. Um, So it's pretty clear that you cannot predict whether someone will have a specific type of mental illness uh, either based on genes only or based on
1: environment only. You, um, I should mention for the listeners that, you know, the focus of your work today, you're currently working on developing easier diagnoses and treatment um, for teenagers who suffer from anxiety and depression. And first of all, gosh, you know, we certainly need that um, in today's world. And I, I first wanted to ask you whether it's your personal opinion or your, um, you know, just your thoughts around – whether we're seeing more of that today um, than we had years ago, um, or is it just that the there's more diagnosis is happening for different mental illnesses than we had the ability to do years ago?
2: Um, so that's a great question. So first of all, I should um, clarify that I do not treat um, patients myself, so I'm not a clinician. Right. Um, I'm, right. I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. <coughs> Um, So I work with um, um, MRI scans and developing methods for potentially one day in the future being able to better um, diagnose and follow the progression of of mental illness. Um, So I, I think we're definitely talking more about mental illness than we used to. So it used to be a big taboo. Yes. And because of that, it's hard to tell if there was... Less of it in the past. My hunch is that that's not the case, um, and that you know a lot of times in the past, mental illness was treated as you know some sort of like uh, personality flaw or something like that, Mm -hmm. uh, rather than an illness the way you would talk about you know heart disease or something like that. Yeah. Um, That's you know that's my general impression.
1: So, did you keep um, your own issues a secret? from from people you knew um i had a
2: very good um therapist (laughs) so that was a uh, i I was definitely talking to someone about them um and i have i had good friends that i could confide in um i would definitely not um you know feel comfortable at the time talking about them in general because there's still a little well, there's not just a little bit. There's still some stigma associated with mental illness. It's assumed that, you know, as soon as you talk, hear about mental illness, you think someone who is unstable or unreliable or something like that. Um, so maybe is not competent professionally. Right, um, right. So I would, I would, <coughs> even I, as you know, I'm talking about this more freely than uh, a lot of people would, I still would... Um, I would think before, you know, saying something, I would think, you know, who am I talking to and how will they perceive this?
1: Yes. Well, you know, I have to, first, all, I just want to commend you for for doing it because I think it it takes a lot of courage. Um, I use the word flawed often when I think that people who have these issues, they they are perceived as somehow mm-hmm. different and flawed and, and they're not. Um, and I think it makes... For the person, it's so much harder when it is kept a secret. When you can share and discuss it, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it brings such relief to the people suffering from it and, of course, closer to um, tools that will help them.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So one way I like to think about it is hopefully one day um, saying that, you're going to the therapist and saying that you're going to the dentist would be perceived the exact same way. Mm. So, um, you know, you wouldn't think twice (laughs) before saying to someone, Oh, I, you know, I can't meet with you at that time because I have a dentist appointment. Right. Right. Uh, But you would think before saying like, Oh, I have to see my therapist because then you would be thinking like, Oh, what is the person thinking? Um, and interestingly we never think if somebody tells you that they see a dentist regularly you would never think, oh, that person must have horrible teeth.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> we think the opposite. Quite the they, opposite, that's exactly. Right. You yeah. would think
2: if somebody has never seen a dentist that they would probably have horrible teeth. That's right. Uh, yeah. But somehow, with seeing a psychologist, um, you don't see it the same way. You see it the opposite way, actually. Yeah, that's You so think that if somebody's seeing a psychologist, they might must be a mess and if someone has never seen one then um they must have
1: everything under control. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. That's really um kind of a an interesting example because um, as you said you're you're helping yourself by going and doing that. Right. And and also, you know, you're a perfect example of of course you are capable um and intellectually uh, gifted to be a physicist and a professor at Harvard. So the idea that somehow um, you, you know, you struggled with depression um, is somehow a flaw is not, it couldn't possibly be true.
2: Right. And again, going back to the, um, to the, you know, the parallel with a dentist situation, I am not even though, you know, I am those things, I'm not expected to be able to, you know, do my own tooth fillings or crowns or whatever. I'm expected to be able to see a specialist for that. But somehow with behavior, which, you know, I would argue is a much more um, complex system um, than teeth, um, I'm expected to
1: be able to handle everything on my own. Tell me, what, what do you think is the greatest misconception about mental illness?
2: Um, Well, first of all, that it's, well, other than the fact that it's a a quote-unquote flaw, um, that it's something that happens to other people or, you know, strange people or something like that. And actually, it's uh, the prevalence of mental illness is, um, I think that it's something like um, one in five people um, suffer from some type of uh, mental illness issue um, at any moment, uh, and if you count, you know, lifetime prevalence—so anyone who has ever suffered from a mental health issue and at any time in their life—that then you can figure out easily that um, you know, all of us—we've either had one of these um, issues or know someone who has. Um so one of the things that we don't often talk about is how common this is.
1: That's right. That's right. Um you know, you said something interesting to me in our um before the show. Um uh, we've been corresponding back and forth and you know, mm-hmm. of course the the devastating shooting that happened last week is at the forefront of everyone's mind. And it has been, you know, depression has been talked about around uh him and you said that and again you're you're not a, you know you're not a psychologist or, or psychiatrist right. but i just find y- you know you have an interesting perspective and knowledge from studying the brain that most people who suffer from depression are more apt to hurt themselves than others and right. that so was depression interesting
2: depression in and of itself doesn't make you um, aggressive towards others so there was right. probably a lot more going on in that case
1: yeah I I think just that awareness alone is something for people to keep in mind.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think that having conversations about mental illness is hugely important. Uh, One issue is that we tend to have them only when something like this happens, and I am a little bit concerned that this could have the opposite effect. It could um, stigmatize mental Ill, uh, illness more rather than uh, make it more okay for people to talk about it. Yes. Uh, because yes. we only talk about it in connection with individuals um, that do horrible harm to others. And actually the majority of people with mental health um, issues do not um, do any sort of physical harm to others. Yeah. Uh, but they there it does... Bring you know a big um psychological toll to the individual and also to the family of the individual um and to the environment of the individual and those cases you know we don't talk about
1: it's a it's just such a tough tough heavy topic you know mm-hmm. and and yes. and we, we can only speculate we no one truly knows um what brings about that kind of um you know those kind of events. No one really knows what uh, you know what spurred it. So I, I, I just agree with you. It's very delicate to talk about uh, the fact that we should be talking about mental illness and then have it um, used as an excuse for um, for violence. And and you know it's just a very very difficult thing. Um, right.
2: And one one thing I should point out is that, you know, the kind of research that I do um, has more to do with, um, you know, it doesn't have to do with these extreme cases. It has to do with, you know, the people around us that have that struggle with depression and anxiety and that do not harm anyone. Um, And those are cases where it's as people who have uh, one of those issues or have someone in their family who does know, uh, usually the the biggest hurdle is diagnosing the issue correctly mm-hmm. um, and that is something that we that is still very difficult to do um, so clinicians have to go by uh, report of the um, the reports of the symptoms uh, either by um, the patient him or herself or by the family um, and that happens at the point where the disorder is severe enough that the symptoms are severe enough that someone um, has visited a a psychologist or a psychiatrist. So uh, what we're hoping to do is to be able to um, better diagnose um, and therefore uh, for the clinicians to be better able to predict what kind of treatment will work uh, for each individual um, and, and be able to do that at an earlier stage. Um, But I should say that even before we get to, you know, the high-tech brain scans, um, there's a lot that can be done just by people having access to basic mental health services. Um, So that's something that can be done, you know, without the futuristic research that that we do. And that uh, may, in fact, um, you know, prevent
1: some of um, these unfortunate events. And that's really good to hear because, you know, to find the root cause and do the kind of research that you're doing mm-hmm. is going to take time, right? So we're not right, going to have exactly. answers overnight. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's just very helpful and good to know that there are things that will help um, today while this, this research is being done. Is it safe for me to say, Anastasia, that the work that you mm-hmm. do is really to try to find the root cause by, by studying uh the anatomy of the brain
2: so the the root cause so that's kind of a a, a big um, um that's that's a very tall order um it's generally a, uh, hypothesized by uh, neuroscientists that um there are specific aspects of how the brain is wired and how the brain functions different parts of the brain that are hallmarks of specific um, mental illnesses. And whether, you know, which one is the chicken and which one is the egg is not entirely clear. So Mm -hmm. it's not clear if it's the difference in your brain that caused um the disease or the disease that caused a difference in your brain um but in either case even if we don't know exactly the direction uh which is the cause and which is the the effect we could still um if if there was a way to extract that information from a brain scan we could still use that to
1: um uh, to better diagnose the person okay um listen we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back I want to talk to you talk to you a little bit about the mapping tool that you developed track we'll talk about that when we come back
0: this is Kristen Hilsley financial advisor of the Foley Hillsley group with a big announcement last fall I hosted a women's lifestyle conference to help the women who do it all take control of their finances now I'm excited to announce a new partnership with Women To Watch Media to help show women how to own their financial future. We'll have newsletter articles, blog posts, announcements of live events, and a lot more, all available at womentowatch.net and our own website, foleyhilsleygroup.com. I'm thrilled about this new partnership, and I look forward to being your resource for all things financial. Stay tuned to learn more or visit our website at foleyhilsleygroup.com. The Foley Hillsley Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird and Company, member SIPC. Log on to FoleyHillsleyGroup.com to learn more. That's F-O-L-E-Y-H-I-L-L-S-L-E-Y
1: group.com or call 610-238-6636. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Women to Watch on WWDB Talk 860 and streaming at womentowatch.net. And I'm joined this afternoon by Dr. Anastasia Yendike, who is the assistant professor in radiology at Harvard Medical School and assistant physicist at Massachusetts General Hospital. Um Anastasia, I read about, you know, this this brain mapping tool that you developed called TRACULA, Uh and I wondered if you could (laughs) tell me what that is uh, in layman's terms. (laughs) Yes.
2: Yep. Um, So the kind of um, uh, brain scan that uh, I work on is a type of MRI scan that allows us to look at how the brain is wired, so how different parts of the brain are connected to each other. Um, And that can differ between different individuals or um, people who have a disease or who do not. And these connections can um, change, um, you know, during one's lifetime, and they can change in different ways if uh, someone develops a a disease. Um, So the idea is that we would like an automated way, to get that information out of these um, brain scans automatically Um, because otherwise someone a a radiologist um, or a neurologist would have to you know manually look at these images that um, produce something that looks like a plate of uh, hundreds of thousands of spaghettis that are all the different connections between different parts of the brain. And they, have to, uh, they would have to manually tease apart all the different you know, roads and highways and compare them from one um, brain to another. Um, so the kind of work that we do has to do with automating that process and having a computer um, extract that information uh, directly from the brain scans.
1: Okay. <laughs> I, I, I think I understand that. You know, one of the things I kept thinking about when I was preparing for the show is, you know, the work that you do um, inevitably will have an enormous difference, or you know, in the lives of, of many, many people and, and young people, I say, because your focus is um, around anxiety and depression for teenagers. How do you deal with your patience or lack of um in your different phases of discovery in other words you know the research can take such a long time Mm -hmm. before there's you know a discovery how do you handle that probably what is that um decades probably yes yes Um, and are you patient are you a patient person or not and how do you deal with it
2: I'm not. Um, so there are times where, you know, I want to throw my computer out of the window um, <laughs> <so> <laughs> when things aren't working the way they're supposed to. So I'm not patient that way. But um, in order to be in this kind of uh, profession, uh, to be in, um, you know, medical research, you have to not need instant gratification um so it it takes years so first you have to um convince you know usually it's a, a federal um agency it's a national institute of health to give you funding to do a study mm-hmm. um then you start to collect the data which can take years and then you have to figure out develop the um, the software that analyzes the data um and you have to publish that and even so and even if if it works if something works at a, like a diagnosis method let's say if it works at um as part of a research study then in order for it to go into clinical practice there's even more steps that you have to go through so it can take forever um so you have to be happy with you know the little the small steps that you do uh so something that wasn't working you know for the last week, and suddenly it works um even if it doesn't mean you've solved um mental illness and it's just a, a, a small uh tiny step that you've taken in uh getting um you know your method to work better uh, so you have to yeah you have to be happy with
1: the small steps yeah um what is your what is your typical day? You know, I you you teach and you also um work at the hospital and I'm just wondering really what your day looks like.
2: Yeah, so I actually do not have a typical day and that's pretty typical of um this type of work. Uh it actually gives you quite a quite a bit of flexibility. Um it depends on, you know, if I have a deadline um then, you know, I'm, my typical day is just working all day. Um so th- there's a lot of parts to what we do um and like you said I so I I enjoy teaching so I do some of that um and then you have to um supervise people in the lab um to do research so students or postdocs um you have to make sure you know things get written so papers Uh, submit them for publication you have to be all the time applying for research grants (laughs) um... so you know my day can be any sort of mix of those things and uh most of the time i work in front of a computer um unless i'm i actually have to be at the scanner and assist with scanning someone mm-hmm. um but one thing that's special about what i do is that um i could you know i could be in a coffee shop and working on your brain scan so um it's it's work that i can do as long as i have a computer in front of me that i can do from anywhere and that's one of the uh, of the nice things, of the nice aspects of um, doing this kind of work, is its flexibility.
1: Right. Are you w- collaborating um, most of the time equally with men and women in your field? Um, yeah, I would say that it's um,
2: um, it's pretty mixed. Uh, at the moment actually when i when I first started, I had uh mostly women uh who wanted to work with me in terms of the people that I supervise um uh, but I think that's gonna start changing <laughs> um in terms of my collaborators yes uh I actually it's very mixed so because I work with people from a lot of different backgrounds. Um, so not just um, technical people like myself, but also uh, medical doctors or psychologists or neuroscientists. Um, I have a pretty, um, you know, there's a lot of gender diversity in my group of collaborators.
1: That's, that's good to hear. You know, we're, there's so much discussion today around um, trying to encourage young women to pursue uh, the STEM mm-hmm. field. What, what is your view on that? Ways in, first of all, why it's important? Mm-hmm. Uh, why do we need more women in STEM? And, and what are ways that you feel, uh, will really have an impact in, in helping them to see that it they're great fields to, to pursue?
2: Yeah. So, um, Well, why is because, you know, the bigger pool of talent we're drawing from, the better, obviously. So if we're drawing just from one half of humanity, it's not as good than if we're drawing from all of it. Um, And I should say that even though my group of collaborators – are both men and women. Uh, when I go to conferences that are more targeted towards um, technical people like myself, who develop computer software, those are, um, you know, much more male dominated. Um, and there, I think it's important to um, to have w- other women. Um, to look at. So it's important for someone, a a young woman who's coming into the field, uh, to be able to see, oh, there's someone who looks like me and uh, seems to be doing okay. So uh, it's not just me being the only woman in this room. Um, And I have been in rooms where I was the only woman. Um, So that's as more uh, women sort of move up um the hierarchy and the ladder the academic ladder um, they will draw more um uh, younger women as well and you know that's what i've seen at least with based on the fact that uh the people who want to work with me are um uh you know in terms of um, students etc are um or at least in the beginning were mostly women
1: have you ever had a um uh, an experience being the only woman in the room and and not being taken seriously because you were?
2: Um yes, and it's hard to it's always hard to say that's why. <laughs> right. Um uh obviously it's it's one of those things where that are impossible to prove. It's like the elephant in the room. Right. Um I Yes, so I have so and this goes back to the question from the beginning of the show about, you know, do I still have to prove uh to other people that they should take me seriously? Yes, I I I still um have to do that sometimes. Um and at some point you figure out that the way someone is treating you says sometimes says more about him than it does about you. Mm. Um so there are certain people whose uh, respect you will never earn <laughs> for better or worse, and it's not even worth trying um but there are people that once they get to know you, they'll figure out that oh, this is someone I should take seriously um so yeah there there have been situations where I felt like um i had I have to you know yell louder <laughs> than everyone in this room, and you know my voice is not at the right pitch to do that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, do you, you know, that's so interesting. Do you hope that one day you won't have that need to prove anymore?
2: I do, um, but... You know, I'm not counting on it. No? (laughs) So um, it's a skill that you have to develop, and, um, you know, it's a muscle that you have to work out from time to time. I do hope that, you know, it will get better, and it has gotten better over the last, you know, 20 years. It it definitely has gotten better from when I was an undergraduate and um, I was in a big, you know, group of students in electrical engineering, and there were only 10% women. Um, so I, it definitely has gotten better over, um, you know, the last couple of decades and I think it will continue to get better.
1: Yes. Yeah. Do you think, so can you describe for me the culture in, in Greece, um, mm-hmm. around women and, and, you know, having leadership positions versus the culture in the U.S.?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so it was. It was quite rare to see women in leadership positions um, when I was growing up in Greece. And it's still, you know, they, they're they still not there, <laughs> um, although it is getting better. Um, there, you know, there's a lot of culture of uh, street harassment. So basically uh, every day I would have to go and take the bus to go to um, to the university for class. And almost pretty much every day, someone in the street would uh, tell me what they thought about some body part of mine oh <laughs> uh, because God. they just think that this that they, um, they can get away with that. Um, and ultimately, that's what it is. It's just a way to show I can do this and nothing will happen to me, so I have a form of power. Mm. Um, it's not really a way to compliment you. <laughs> no, no. Um, so I... I have had to deal with that and you know I would end up getting to school you know pissed off because of that every day um so that was something that was different when I moved to the US um so so here it's not as obvious or as obnoxious <laughs> I would say it, it's more insidious. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, that's – it's good to hear because, again, it's a topic that's at the forefront of our oh, news yeah. cycle right now. And um, I think that, you know, obviously talking about it and awareness is always a good first step to changing something that's not good, mm-hmm. um, especially for the next generation of girls coming up. Um And that's, we could do a whole show on that. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Um, One of the things, you know, I often ask my guests what they do to kind of, you know, when they step away from work and want to just not feel the pressures and the stress, you know, what do you do? And I know that you're a dancer. When did that start? Yeah. When did you start dancing and how did that come about?
2: So um I told you I was always you know into the arts and music in general and um uh what I do right now is I dance flamenco mm-hmm. and I started that I think it was probably 2009 when I started learning so I learned here in Boston uh, although it was something that I had seen you know back in the day when I was still in Greece um obviously Greece by proximity to to Spain um you you do get you know you're aware of this kind of uh, art form, and I always thought, oh, this is something that I could see myself doing one day, and uh, so it was on my bucket list. And eventually, I got to um, uh, to you know, start taking classes when uh, I was um, here when I first moved here to Boston, and um, it it actually became part of you know my uh my mental health uh, regimen like how i deal with um um with life in general yeah um and it's it became a form of self expression and um a need um that i always turn to <laughs> when uh like you said i need to take my mind away from uh from things i find that it's um it has almost a uh, meditative quality mm-hmm. uh, because you're focusing on something so flamenco is a p- p- percussive d- dance so you have to um uh dance uh together with um uh, guitar music uh, as well as um, a singer um, so everybody has to so there's some improvisation element to it but they all have to kind of like come together and there is kind of almost like a conversation like a leading and following but uh, mutually between the um, uh, the guitarist and the singer and the dancer um, so you have to focus on you know this um 12-beat rhythm, rhythm. let's say. And it's almost like when med- with meditation where you have to focus on your breathing. Um, so it has that kind of uh, effect on my brain. So I go to the studio to practice and I go in, you know, with a lot of things uh, uh, going on in my head and stressing out about uh, a bunch of things. And then uh, after a while i realized like oh i'm those things don't exist anymore because I, I focused on this one thing yeah um and then obviously you know there's the the beautiful music and um and singing and everything so it just speaks to me on different levels
1: yeah it it's a beautiful dance how often do mm-hmm. you do it are you there once a week or several times a week uh yeah so i actually um i teach a, a beginner class um so i
2: teach once a week and um uh, we have performances also in the Boston area, so when you're in town next time, uh, let me know. Um,
1: <laughs> I'd love to come to Boston. I Boston's a great city.
2: Yes, so let me know when uh, you're in town, and uh, we'll invite you to one of our performances. Okay. So we have also regular um,
1: shows um, every month. Mm-hmm. How about is there anything else that you do outside of um, outside of work? um well there's not much time
2: left (laughs) (laughs) I I bet yeah
1: that's about all you can fit in a day
2: (laughs) right so obviously you know I, I spoke about flamenco as a hobby but it's actually something that requires you to you know apply yourself and practice a lot and it's also a hard thing uh even though I do it for um for pleasure um I also like to travel so travel is something also that you know allows me to, um, you know, just new simulation, new images, uh, allows me to um, sort of disconnect. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And thankfully, thanks to my work, because I get to go to international conferences and interesting places, I, um, I can combine
1: that. Do you have any family here or is everyone still in Greece? No, I don't have any family in the U.S. No. Okay. I have good friends
2: who are and have been like family to me here.
1: Yeah, that's great. How about if I were to ask you, you know, kind of what's next for you? Is is what you're working on now, what you think you'll be continually working on over the next yes, many years. Yeah. yeah.
2: Um, like I said because it's something that takes a long time, um, and it's something that I have already invested a lot, you know, mentally, physically, emotionally. Um, it's something that I want to continue doing and uh, hopefully uh, make a difference at some point in the future.
1: Um, I I read that you you were asked, you know who who you admire, and mm-hmm. um, you mentioned the suffragettes and yes. and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, who fought for their voice. Um, when it wasn't easy to speak out, I, I love that. Um, and and you said whenever something seems challenging, I think about them and what they had to deal with, and it keeps me going. Is right. Th- so
2: at least I'm not, you know, risking my life. That's <laughs> by, right. That's uh, right. By being uh, by doing something uh, that's not considered uh, traditionally female. So I can only imagine. Um, the kind of guts that it took to do that when it did mean uh risking your own life That's um, right. and just the you know the amazing um uh, the ama- amazing wins that had to come before uh me being able to do the things that um I'm doing now um and even sort of taking them for granted and just thinking that you know a few generations back um i wouldn't even be able to open my own bank account so that you don't even have to go back to the suffragettes you just have to go a few um you know a few decades back uh where you would need you know your um guardian or your husband to uh, sign for you to open a, a bank account so things that we consider very uh, that we take for granted um and that actually women had to fight for um to get for us
1: you're right. you know it, it is amazing isn't it how not you know it really wasn't that long ago mm-hmm. and and yeah. how far we've yeah. come right well we do you have a kind of a mantra or something that you know we all face challenges regularly mm-hmm. and so is there something that you know you say to yourself on a regular basis when you're in one of those moments
2: um, so something that I I was talking to a group of, um, uh, of female postdocs here at MGH at a, a mentoring event recently, and mm-hmm. I realized, I saw some patterns that, you know, I also recognized um, in my younger self um, that we tend to wait for the quote-unquote perfect time to do certain things um, and postpone things because, you know, we have obligations to others or whatever that we have to finish first and so i just um i like to remind myself not to do that and i like to remind myself um that you know i i make the moment perfect for doing that something just by you know going and doing it um and you know not to hold myself back that way
1: that's a you know that's always a great reminder because guess what life goes incredibly fast oh yeah <laughs> right it's just we're here for a very very short time yeah <laughs> the reality absolutely. is absolutely yeah you you got a, a wonderful mention uh, fast company um stated you most mm-hmm. you landed on the most creative people list uh-huh. what yes. did yeah what did that mean to you to get that um yeah, that was very unexpected. Um,
2: they don't have a lot of scientists on that um list yeah. and um so it was an interesting opportunity to um to interact with people from different industries. They had a nice event um that I went to and I guess um I guess it has something to do with being able to speak with people and being able to communicate about what I do. Um, in a way that other people can understand. Yes. Um, and I hope to be able to do more of that because I really appreciate, uh, I really enjoy um, doing that. Um, and so I hope that, um, and, you know, it, then it was an opportunity to do other things like this interview, for example, or, or the, the story in InStyle that you read. Um, so I think that we need more of that. We need to do more of that as, um, as scientists, to um to communicate with the greater public more
1: I think that's so true and so very important you know when I initially read about you um I think we we have assumptions about scientists that mm-hmm. um, they typically don't have those same communication skills and it's just that your <laughs> yes. your brain is full of so much uh you know greater uh Important things and the ability to really speak to people who don't have that knowledge and that education um, is is not typical. So I think it's I think that's probably one of the best reasons for them to um, give you that accolade and and hopefully you can do more of your speaking um, to young women as well.
2: Yes, I do I do hope that I can do that because like I said, it's so important for someone to be able to see that someone that looks like them um is um is doing this
1: kind of work. Yeah. Um just in the in the last minute we have can you just leave um our audience with advice uh, particularly women who are uh, have aspirations to pursue um your field and and be a scientist. What would you want to say to them?
2: Um I I want to say to them that you know you will get some messages that you know you are different from us, um, and ultimately you have to be okay with that, and you have to be okay with dif- being different than everyone else um, in the room, um, and don't let that deter you, uh, because ultimately that difference is your strength as well. Um, and you can you can bring a different um, different perspective and keep in mind that you know we have we all have our little inner voices and maybe our inner voices are telling us you know you can't do this um, and maybe the other person's um, inner voice is telling them you know just be louder and look stronger because that's what you have to do um, and you know just, keep that in mind that we're all humans and, um, you are dealing with imperfect humans and you are an imperfect human yourself. Um, and it's okay. And don't beat
1: yourself up Mm, for it. That's great. Great, great, um, words to leave our listeners with, uh, Dr. Anastasia Yandicki, I thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. I wish you you continued success. Thank you. Thank you. That's it everyone for another week of women to watch. Have a great week.